I am really honored to be here this morning because of the role that Grace Bible Church plays in uniting the churches of Georgetown to work together to advance God's kingdom. I consider you to be one of the most important churches in Georgetown and Dave Roberts to be one of Georgetown's most important pastors. And as I begin our uh, sermon today, I wanted to give a shout out to Ryan Hansen, another one of my friends from Central. We returned from Latvia in September of 2010, and Ryan was my son Christopher's 7th and 8th grade Sunday school teacher. And of all the Sunday school teachers Christopher had at Central, Ryan was my favorite, because Ryan really loved Jesus, and he loves the kids, and he's committed to missions. I remember in the fall of 2011, Ryan was asking me, is there some project that the Sunday school class could do that would advance the kingdom of God in Latvia. And I told him about a lady who, um, one of her side gigs was to distribute candy canes attached with an evangelistic candy cane story that she gave to public school teachers who then distributed them in the public schools so that the kids could hear about Jesus. And so Brian worked with his class and they gathered up a bunch of candy canes and sent them to that lady in the fall of 2011. On a personal note, I kind of live by the motto, um, he who is easily pleased is frequently pleased. And so since I am so easily pleased, I go through life as a very happy man. And there's something that's happening this week that's got me totally stoked. That is, on Thursday, we get Toy Story 4. <laughs> this may not seem like much to you, but Toy Story 4 totally excites me. Because Toy Story has played a big role in our lives and in our parenting. When we were in Latvia, you know, Christopher was a young guy, we didn't have all of those uh, devices that you could use to entertain kids when you were traveling. So like we'd be in the airport or we'd be taking a long drive in the country uh, and we'd need to keep Christopher occupied. And so we did it the old-fashioned way. We told stories. And one of the most frequent stories we told was the Toy Story story. And it kind of was like a little bit of uh, Toy Story catechism. It would go something like this. Once upon a time, there was a little boy named Charlie. And Chris would go, no, Daddy, his name was Andy. i go, oh, well, poor, poor Andy didn't have very many toys. No, Daddy, Andy had a lot of toys. And his favorite toy was Mr. Potato Head. No, Daddy, his favorite toy was, was Woody. And we would go on and on and on. And then we got to the point, usually we would stop around the time when, when uh, Andy and his mom left the gas station, leaving Buzz and Woody behind as lost toys. And I would say, okay, Buzz and Woody are both lost. Who's in the worst shape? And he would go, Buzz is in the worst shape because he doesn't even know that he's lost. <laughs> I'd go, you're right. I said, there's something else about Buzz, too. I said, Buzz... I said, is he, is he really a space ranger? And Chris would go, no, he's not a space ranger. He's a toy. I go, you're right. He's a toy. He doesn't even know who he is. And is his purpose really to save the universe from the evil emperor Zerg? And Chris would go, no, daddy. His purpose is to please Andy. And I go, you're right. I said, and in fact, there's a lot of Christians, an awful lot like Buzz. They think that they are engineers or doctors or taxi drivers when they're really children of God. 
And they think that their purpose is maybe to make a lot of money or to be uh, driving people around town or to healing people, and that's good. But their real purpose is to please God. Now, I don't know how much of that spiritual truth my five-year-old son got, but those are the two main points of today's sermon, that all of us who are believers, followers of Jesus, all Christians are children of God, and two, our life's purpose as children of God is to love God and our fellow man and serve them through doing good works and sharing good words. And if you understand those two points, then you basically have got today's sermon. Hopefully, you'll still enjoy it. (laughs) So in conclusion, (laughs) no, (laughs) no. One time, one time I was preaching at a church in East Texas, and, da- and Christopher said, Daddy, why don't you just preach five-minute sermons? And he said, and I said, if I preached a five-minute sermon, they would immediately make me the senior pastor. <laughs> I said, I don't want that. <laughs> All of us are unique combinations of identities. Some identities we inherit, like our nationality, our ethnicity, our gender, Some identities we achieve, like our talents, like our profession, like our job title. Some identities we obtain through um, the clubs we belong to, or our political parties, or the church we attend, or the the company that hires us. They're, They're identities of belonging. But all of us are kind of a unique combination of identities. But one of those identities is going to be your primary identity. Now, if you remember what I told Christopher, our primary identity as a Christian is to be a child of God. And we get that from 1 John 3, 1. John writes, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. Now, for Paul, the Apostle Paul, friend of John, um, he said this identity supersedes all other identities. It is by far the primary identity. And we get that from Galatians 3.28. When Paul writes, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor American nor Latino nor Asian nor European nor African. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither hygienist nor dentist nor cashier, nor store manager, nor teacher's aide, nor principal. There's neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Now for Paul, this wasn't just theoretical. He really applied it to his life, and it affected his way of looking at himself and his values. In Philippians 3, verses 4 to 8, Paul writes, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I'm found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish 
in order that I might gain Christ. So what's Paul saying? Paul's saying that even though I have superior sources of significance, even though I have amazing icons of identity, I've got the right family, I've got the right ethnicity, I've got the right job, I've even got the right temperament, I've got an incredible resume. And all of that is rubbish compared to the value of being a child of God and knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. So are you proud to be an American? Well, it's rubbish compared to your identity as a child of God. Are you proud of the job that you have, maybe the education you've achieved? Again, compared to being a child of God, it's rubbish. So why don't we more appreciate this identity we have as children of God? I think some of it is we live in a tolerant society, a multicultural society that kind of says, you know, everybody is a child of God. I think that's a cultural belief we have, and it's an incorrect belief. We are not all children of God. According to Scripture, we are all created by God, in fact, created in his own image. And that gives every single person immense dignity and worth and value. But we are not all of God's children. There's a tremendous difference between being a creation of God and being a child of God. And to illustrate this difference, we're going to look at the story Pinocchio. So here we have this little puppet Pinocchio created by Geppetto, made of wood. He is like many other toys that Geppetto has created. He is a creation of Geppetto. And by the end of the movie, there's a transition that takes place. That wooden heart becomes a heart of flesh. He is now, at the end of the movie, a child of God, a child, excuse me, of Geppetto, when he proves himself worthy of being a child of Geppetto. And that actually is a very biblical um, picture. Because we don't become a child of God until we are worthy of being a child of God. But I, there's the rub. How do we become worthy of being a child of God? Because, in fact, there's only one person who's ever been worthy of being a child of God, and that is the actual Son of God, Jesus. So what Jesus did is he said, you know, I'm the only one. I'm the only way. I'm the only one who's ever been worthy of being a child of God. But as a gift, I offer my worthiness to anybody who also wants to be children of God. If you want to be a child of God, please accept my worthiness, and you too can join me in being children of God. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. That's what we celebrate at Easter. But it's a choice that we make, and it, we find that in John 1.12. Yet to all who did receive him, who accepted that gift of Jesus' worthiness, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Again, you're not born a child of God. You become a child of God at a point in time when you receive Jesus' worthiness. Now, in the scriptures, they don't really use the term Jesus' worthiness. They use a, a more theological term. They'll use the term righteousness, but it's the same thing. You receive Jesus' righteousness. You receive Jesus' worthiness, and you can become a child of God. Isn't it obvious? Child of God, isn't that the best identity that you could have? And here's the bonus. If our primary identity 
is child of God, we get some extra descriptions of that identity that are pretty amazing. Here's some of the extra descriptions. You're part of a holy nation. You're part of a royal priesthood. You're an ambassador of Christ. You're a joint heir with Christ. You're a co-laborer with God. You have the, the ministry of reconciliation. You're a minister of reconciliation. You're salt and light. You've got, you've got more cool descriptions of who you are as a child of God than Apollo Creed had in the first Rocky movie. It's amazing what the Bible says about us. We have the best identity. But what breaks my heart as a pastor is that even though we Christians have the best identity today, we spend so much time and so much emotional energy trying to pursue identities or hold on to identities that are not only lesser identities, but they're ultimately identities we're going to lose anyway. I've met many rich people who become poor. I've met many beautiful people who have lost their looks due to age or accident. I have met many people with positions of power who lose an election or get fired and lose all that power. I've met people who earn honors and awards that after a period of time, no one really cares about anymore. Steve McMichael is an all-time great Longhorn football player, and his experience is not uncommon amongst those who base their significance and identity on something that couldn't last. He says, my whole existence was about walking out of that tunnel and hearing the roar of the crowd. That's what you miss, mattering to that throng. That's when you're really alive. And do you ever get back to that point once it's gone? I haven't. I haven't. Why is our primary identity so important? Well, from your identity flows your life purpose and your mission. Your identity is really the foundation point of your life. If your identity is a Marine, then your purpose is to win battles and win wars. If your purpose, if your identity, excuse me, is as an employee of Apple, then your purpose is to build really cool products and to increase uh, sales, you know, market margin, sales margin, or, or meet sales quotas. If your identity is as an oppressed minority, then your goal and purpose is to get respect and increase your rights. If your identity is as a football player or some other athlete, then your goal is to win games, win championships. But what is the purpose, the life purpose and mission of a child of God? Well, the first duty of any child is not to mow the grass. It's not to wash the dishes. It's not to clean up their room. The first and primary duty of any child is to love their parents. And that's true of a child of God. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind. That is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, Jesus modeled for us the two best ways that we can love our neighbors as ourselves. The first is by serving them, doing good works. Jesus said in Mark 10:45, "For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now some may say, okay, what are those good works? Does church work count? Obviously. Does uh, volunteer ministry, maybe at the serving center? Yes. But I also believe this includes your job. When Christopher was 15, we started having conversations about what is life like as an adult and what are professions like. And I said, you know, son, at the root of every profession, at the root of every job, there's there's a problem that you need to solve for people. Now, if that problem was easy, then they wouldn't need you to solve it. So the problem usually has to be a little bit difficult or something that's not quite so pleasant for them to solve. And that's what gives you your job. Now, for believers, our jobs give us an opportunity to really love people in Jesus' name by solving an important problem that the people he created have. It could be educating their kids. It could be um, building or selling or fixing something that they need. It could be keeping them safe. It could be getting them healthy. It could be entertaining them. But for a believer, I can approach my job, you know, I can work for the love of a paycheck or to get a boss off of my back, or I could work for the love of God. I could work for the love of others. And believe me, work is a lot more motivational when I've got that second motivation. If I see my job as an opportunity to love people and serve people, it changes everything in how I approach my job. Often when a serviceman comes to my house, and unfortunately they come often because I have like no DIY skills, they'll finish the job and I'll say something like, thank you very much for solving such an important problem that I had. It must make you feel really good to have the knowledge and skills that allow you to be such a blessing to so many people. I don't think service people hear this very often. But usually when I say that to a service person, they'll stop and talk to me for a second. And usually in the course of our conversation, we're able to have a little bit of a spiritual conversation. I can introduce a spiritual nugget into their lives. Now, why would I want to do that? Well, because the second way Jesus modeled loving your neighbor is by telling or sharing good words. In Luke 19.10, Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 to 18, Paul writes, To all of us who've been reconciled to God, to those people, he gave them the ministry of reconciliation. Of all the problems that a person has, no problem is greater than their separation from God. And if I can give them a little spiritual nugget that nudges them a little bit closer to having that relationship with God, then I've helped them in solving the biggest problem that they have. Friends, isn't it really obvious that we not only have the best identity, but we also have the best mission and purpose? I mean, after all, If your purpose is to win championships, as Dwayne Thomas, former Cowboy running back, said, if the Super Bowl is the ultimate game, how come there's another game next year? You know, you meet your sales quota for Apple. As soon as you meet that quota, a new quota starts. You never get to the end of it. 
In John 4, there's the story of the woman at the well, and Jesus commends that woman for her daily faithfulness of getting that water out, supplying the needs for herself and for her family. But then he says in verse 13 and 14, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him or will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So quenching a person's thirst, their physical thirst, it's commendable, it's important. All the things we do in our jobs are commendable and important. But the best thing we can do is to help quench their spiritual thirst. And we can do both. We can be the ones that help meet a physical need that they have, and we can be the ones that helps meet a spiritual need that they have. That's our mission and purpose. And by the way, what do you call somebody that has a spiritual mission? You call someone with a spiritual mission a missionary. That's why I never like to identify myself as a missionary, because it makes it sound like I'm different from you. I am not different from you. The only difference is where might I live and who pays my check. All believers are missionaries. That is part of our true and primary identity. Now, up to now, I've been focused on one kind of problem that believers have. That is the problem of embracing a good but lesser identity. But there's a second problem that believers might have, and that is embracing a harmful and self-destructive identity. And we find this illustrated in another Disney movie, The Lion King. And by the way, this talk has been sponsored by the Walt Disney Corporation. (laughs) (laughs) If you remember The Lion King, you've got King Mufasa and his eager young son, Simba. Now, Simba has totally embraced being the child of the king. In fact, Simba just can't wait to be king. But then something tragic happens. His father dies. His father is murdered by the evil Uncle Scar, who deceives Simba and makes him think that he himself, Simba himself, is the murderer. Unfortunately, Simba rejects his true identity as the child of the king and embraces that false and self-destructive identity as murderer. And he rejects his responsibilities as king, and he runs away from his community. Now, I'm pretty sure that Simba's not the only person ever to embrace a negative identity. Perhaps some of you have done that also. Perhaps some of you say, you know, I can't really be a very good child of God. I can't really be a very good missionary. I can't really do... um, those good deeds or share those good words because I've got something in my life. I'm addicted to something. Maybe I'm an alcoholic. Maybe it's another kind of addiction. You don't know how messed up my relationships have been in my life. I've really screwed up every significant relationship I ever had. Oh, you know, I I could barely find a job. Or if I have a job, I can barely keep a job. I'm an ex-con. I've got something in my life. And we embrace that as our identity. The turning point in The Lion King comes when the monkey Rafiki takes Simba, who's now an adult. He takes him down to the river. 
at dusk and shows him his reflection. And he looks into the, the river, and he looks like Mufasa. And in fact, he hears Mufasa speak to him. And Mufasa says, you have forgotten who you are. Look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than what you've become. You must take your place in the circle of life. Remember who you are. You are my son, Luke, and the one true king. <laughs> oh. Sometimes I get Darth Vader and Mufasa mixed up. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> well, Matthew West wrote a song that speaks to all of us who have defined ourselves by our failures. And perhaps you've heard the song. It plays frequently on Christian radio. Hello, my name is. Hello, my name is Regret. I'm pretty sure that we've met every single day of your life. I'm the whisper inside that won't let you forget. Hello, my name is Defeat. I know you recognize me. Just when you think you can win, I'll drag you right back down again till you've lost all belief. Oh, these are the voices, oh, these are the lies, and I have believed them for the very last time. Hello, my name is child of the one true king. I've been saved, I've been changed, I've been set free. Amazing grace is the song I sing. Hello, my name is child of the one true king. I'm no longer defined by all the wreckage behind. The one who makes all things new has proven it's true. Just take a look at my life. What love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called his children. I am child of the one true king. Isn't that a great song? Great words. I want to conclude with a story about a superhero. And her name is PJ. Doesn't look like a superhero, but she's amazing. At the age of 46, PJ was attacked with a very serious illness called lupus. Now, this illness attacked her eyes, and over the course of the rest of her life, she received two corneal transplants. And even with those corneal transplants, she's effectively blind. She can barely see. The lupus attacked her kidneys and put her on dialysis. To fight the lupus, she took huge doses of prednisone, which so weakened her bones, so made her bones brittle, that she's had multiple compression fractures in her spine. And she's had three different hip replacement surgeries. Her medications elevated her potassium level and her blood pressure to such high levels that her doctor said, you know, PJ, you're a walking time bomb, and you're probably going to die. He was pretty blunt with her. And one day, this prophecy started becoming true. PJ was in her bedroom, and she was hungry. And on her way from the bedroom to the kitchen to get a sandwich, she collapsed in a chair in her living room. She said to herself, this is it. I'm going to die. And as she's preparing to die, she looks out the sliding glass door, and she sees a dog just meandering, sniffing, looking very happy. And this made PJ really mad. She goes, Lord, you're letting that dog live, and I'm about to die? Why don't you let me live too, and I can tell others about Jesus? And miraculously, PJ started getting better. And in fact, her doctor then said to her at the next visit, you know, there's a power besides me that's, that's making you better. I'm not doing this. P. 
TJ got so well that by the age of 52, she was able to start taking mission trips. By the age of 56, PJ joined our team in Latvia. I think the next slide shows her with the team we had for one of those years. PJ was working with us. At that time, we were sharing, uh, teaching teachers how to uh, train students in Christian morals and ethics in the public schools. And so PJ was joining us in that. But as she got to know more and more Latvian women, her heart broke because the average Latvian woman had six abortions because there was no real birth control there. That was their primary form of birth control. And the post-traumatic stress of abortion broke PJ's heart, and she felt called to do a ministry to post-abortion ladies. Well, that was not the direction we were going, and so we released her, and she joined and actually founded a new ministry in Latvia called Precious Life Ministry in the year 2000. And Precious Life Ministry has done a lot of things, including establishing the first Christian pregnancy center in Latvia. In 2011, she received a box of candy canes from Ryan Henson and the kids at Central Baptist Church. In 2018, last September, I was in Riga on a little short mission trip. And who should I see on the streets of Latvia but PJ? at age 77, still living in Latvia. She can barely walk. She can barely see. I didn't tell you that she could barely hear. And she is doing an amazing work for the Lord. Now, in 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul writes to his young disciple, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. If you're a believer, then you're a missionary because you have a mission. Now, you've been created to do good works. You've been created to, to share good news. Now, we can come up with excuses, and I think last week in the sermon, Dave Roberts referred to our excuses as scales that need to fall from our eyes. Now, your excuse could be, I'm too old. Your excuse could be, I'm too young. Your excuse could be, I've not had enough training, or I didn't have the right education, or I don't have the right temperament. Oh, I'm so shy, I can't do it. You could come up with any number of excuses why God can't use you. And they're all inadequate. Because it doesn't really depend on you. It depends on God. Trust me, PJ is a very remarkable person but not in particularly remarkable ways. I would bet that almost every single one of you has more health than PJ. I would bet that almost every single one of you probably has more talents than PJ. But what makes PJ remarkable is that she exemplifies ordinary people with an extraordinary ability to overcome obstacles and to live sacrificially in order to love and to serve others. And trust me, if PJ can be a successful missionary in Latvia, and she really is, then you can be a successful missionary any place you are for as long as you live. And in conclusion, as the band comes up, I want to share one last thought. In Toy Story, Andy didn't love his, kid, his toys because they went on 
great adventures with him. He took his toys on great adventures because he loved them. And he wanted to be with them. And he wanted to just share life with his toys. The Blues Brothers got it wrong. We are not on a mission from God. We are on a mission with God. We are co-laborers with God. Our life is meant to be an adventure. It's not meant for us to just play it safe. But he wants us to live an adventuresome life, a sacrificial life of going for it, taking some risks, putting ourselves out there. Because he wants to be with us. He wants us to have to rely on him. That's the great adventure. And that great adventure started when we became a child of God, and it's going to continue unto infinity and beyond.